Welcome to Life on Planet Earth with John Aiden Byrne. Money laundering is not being combated in an effective manner. Even even moving money across borders is has gotten so easy. Whether it be uh, trade based money laundering, where you're buying and selling things across borders, I shipped down to Mexico 20 tons of extra virgin olive oil, and that tractor trailer makes a U-turn and changes the name from extra virgin olive oil to used oil, and it comes back across the border. Going to have that truck doing. Uh, loops all day long. That was international financial investigator L. Burke Files, our guest on this episode, telling me about the explosion in money laundering and how COVID-19 shutdowns is fueling fears of massive fraud and a coming economic disaster. Burke Files, as he is commonly known, operates a global financial investigation operation out of Arizona. You've seen him on Fox News, CBS News, the BBC, and he is often quoted in major media for his expertise as a finance and corporate world insider. Burke has received a commission and a Medal of Merit from the President of the United States, he has lots to tell us, including about those persistent charges that China is stealing America's intellectual property. Burke's forecast for the global economy post-COVID-19 is grim. We hope he is wrong. And Burke says the shutdowns and upheaval just raises the prospects for even more fraud and massive global money laundering. His comments come on the heels of a recent episode of our podcast when Jeffrey Robinson, the famed author of The Laundry Men and other tomes, warned of the huge sums of money illegally sloshing about the globe and hidden in offshore accounts. The evidence is overwhelming. I used to have an office over there. In China. uh, Yes, sir, in, in Beijing. And I'd meet members of the American Chamber of Commerce, and they're just like, well, I put together a factory, and there's one just a half a click away that's identical to mine, putting out material that I, at price points I can't compete with. They copy them. Yeah. Here's Jeffrey Robinson, author of the bestseller, The Laundryman, speaking to us by phone recently. Today, most authorities will admit that there is somewhere between $1 and $1.5 trillion in dirty money circling the globe looking to be bedded down somewhere. That represents, wait, 10%, but it's only 10% of the money in the offshore world. So there's 10 to $15 trillion that nobody knows who owns hidden in the offshore world someplace. It's 2 to 5% of the world GDP. That's how big this problem is. And when you talk about drugs, I think it is still true what we said 15, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, that worldwide, more money is spent on illicit drugs, that includes pharmaceuticals, than on food. How about that for a figure? A voyage of discovery in an uncommon age of unparalleled scientific, economic, political, and social upheaval, life on planet Earth searches for the unvarnished truth, answers, solutions, and above all, hope for our existential crisis.
Well, it's grand to be back. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne, and our guest is Burke Files, who will talk about high finance and fraud. A moment ago, you just heard Jeffrey Robinson reminding us of the size and scale of global money laundering, just to echo and reinforce some of what Burke Files is talking about on this episode. Burke, an international financial investigator and best-selling author, has lots to tell us. I first asked him for his take on where our global and US economy is at amidst COVID-19 shutdowns and reopenings. Oh my gosh, the, the landscape has changed so much in, in a fistful of weeks. You've gone from uh, a good economy to an economy that is in, in tatters. Um, I've seen projections for recovery this summer. I, I don't know recovery in what. What I'm seeing in the small small side is a lot of people taking what debt and cash they can out of their businesses to survive. So the, the business creditors are uh, not going to be able to to collect their money, and whether that be a, uh, a landlord or a cable supplier, food or beverage supplier to those businesses, they'll be very unable, they'll be unable to collect. I'm seeing a lot of the larger companies doing a dance with their assets and their debt. For example, several of the airlines. I'm I'm out here in Arizona, and there are probably 800 aircraft being stored out here from the different airlines. And what I learned is a lot of the airlines are taking their their aircraft off quote flight ready mode. <clears throat> when you store an aircraft, it has to be the batteries have to be kept charged. The fluids apparently have to be changed or circulated. So what they're doing is they're taking some of their older aircraft off active flying and using those parts aircraft. So now that's going to change what they have to pay on their leases and or their loans on the aircraft. So those people that were doing aircraft lending, they all know they're in a world of hurt. And even the ones that are good are going to have problems. Gosh, how many airlines have gone down? Avianca? South African, Flybe, Virgin, Trans States. I think there's several more that are going to go under. What about the airlines that are getting <clears throat> government funding to keep them afloat? It's not going to cure the hole in the boat. They've just postponed the inevitable reckoning. When you're looking at even a small airline having 2 to $3 million of fixed expenses every day, that's just fixed expenses between storing aircraft, keeping your website running and having a skeleton crew around. That's just a, that's a hell of a burden. You can't maintain that. Barring some miracle turnaround, there's going to be a lot of bankruptcies in the airline and other industries, consolidations, and very distressed situations. Yes, you'll, you'll see some parallels. Those companies that had a great deal of leverage, they borrowed a lot of money, are going to have the hardest time. The hotel companies... The rental uh, companies, whether it be cars or equipment, those those uh, other companies such as Tells Travel, oh, ships and freight, and it's not just cruise ships. The freight is declining uh, all over the world. The amount of freight moving is declining. So what's going to happen with those ships? What's going to happen with those ports? It's not just an industry. It's a systemic three-month disruption of business. Even if you had a, a great restaurant that was 
had a 30% return on sales. You're now closed three months. How do you recoup those three months of not only no sales, but fixed rent, utilities, insurance, benefits? Well, we've already seen the government and the Fed step in with $3 trillion plus and more in bailouts and uh, protection for workers' incomes, bond buying programs. It's all across the board, and every day we get a new surprise. It's extraordinary the amounts of money that are sloshing around. Well, there's an extraordinary amount of money sloshing around, but it's, I, I don't think it's going to be anywhere uh, enough. And I, I think that often government programs come in and they say, we're going to do X. We're going to give you 90 days not to pay on your home mortgage. Well, and then what? And that this is a systemic problem with political economic thinking. And then what? So postponing uh, the day of reckoning. In particular with mortgages, you have the servicers. And those people that are servicing the pools of mortgages have to pull out any mortgage that's 90 days past due or greater. A 90-day past due mortgage is not eligible to be part of uh, a Fannie or Freddie or a Ginnie Mae package or even a VA package. Let's go back to what you said earlier about companies preserving and holding their cash, putting it aside. Where are they putting those assets, their cash? Their cash, they're going into short-term treasuries. They are, it's, it's a huge flight to quality to get away from uh, any additional risks. If you take a look at the marketplace, what you saw in the marketplace was a huge flight to quality. You were seeing money coming in from all over the world to the U.S. market. We think of just the United States, but this has hit Europe. Um, the OECD said that Europe is going to have an unprecedented recession, probably not seen since World War II. Well, we saw some pickup in the economy, if we can believe all the numbers, last month, which payrolls and, and unemployment claims and jobs being created. So there are some positive indicators, although certainly weak ones in the overall scheme. Correct. You, you still have enormous unemployment. And when the federal subsidy disappears, federal uh, unemployment subsidy disappears, will the jobs that they're looking for even be there? A rather I'll not cite it, but one article said that uh, half of all small businesses will close. And the economist who was the author said, and that's a good thing because they shouldn't have been around. Really? I mean, that's a little rough. There's a, there's a, a custom butcher shop around the corner that caters to the uh, Latin American community. They closed two months ago. They're done. It's been there for 20 years, making a good, making good income for the family, but you know, two months of absolutely zero business, they can't pay their bills. America is filled with small business owners, mom and pops, bars, restaurants, that butcher stores you mentioned. They're cash businesses. Do you think a lot of cash is being put under the mattress to avoid detection so when things make some kind of a recovery, some business owners may be able to get back in and avoid the gaze of Uncle Sam. Oh, I hope they're putting cash under the mattress. I, I don't look so much as it is, as a tax issue because these businesses have lost so much money, they probably won't have a profit and owe taxes. I look at it more as something that 
the creditors aren't going to get paid. Now, you asked the question, was there a lot of cash sloshing around? Yes. Just as the onset of the virus hit, um, people were pulling out large sums of money out of banks all over the United States. New York, some people were pulling out forty, fifty thousand dollars Individuals. And I get it. Yeah, and I get it. What happens if the banks don't work? Where's your money? And these are numbers you are able to back up with good sources. Yes, some of the stories, uh, Wall Street Journal, were pulling the, the cash out. We're documenting the cash being pulled out. Um, talking with some of the bankers, they were wondering what was happening to all of it. I hope we soon don't lose count, but the US Fed and Treasury has been on a binge lately and a spending spree with trillions of dollars in support for the financial and economic system. I asked Burke Files, a financial investigator and finance expert, for his take, and he said the Fed helped shore up the financial system at the outset of the coronavirus shutdown. And then he took me back to earlier in 2020, long before the COVID-19 crisis erupted. That was when the Fed was engaged in overnight funding operations, buying T-bills in large sums as much as $60 billion in the first months of operations. Uh, It was uh, pretty dire. And it had started before the corona. There was a liquidity. There's a serious liquidity problem. If you take a look at the uh, uh, interbank rate and the overnight rate and look at what was happening to it back in January, there was a liquidity problem already developing. What was causing that? They were that? pumping money in. I don't know. The world economy or the U.S. economy was not quite as strong as some people might have imagined looking at the unemployment rates and growth and jobs, there still were underlying issues, serious ones. That's correct. And you'll start to see more pressure three to four months from the beginning of of, uh, March, April, May, end of this month, beginning of July. I think you're going to see more people starting to draw on their retirement savings. They will run out of cash and run out of assistance. Does uh, today's climate, the shutdowns, people staying at home, more transactions being done on digital platforms raise the possibilities for more fraud and what kind of fraud might that be? Um, it absolutely does raise the chance for fraud. In the, the, the pre-device days, one of the checks and balances we had is you had to go see a human being. You had to go to the bank or you had to go to your insurance agent. What is seen as a company moves from human agents to online enrollment, there's an increase in fraud. The fraudsters will game the system just to see how they can get money out. You and I have other things to do in our life. We have lives, we have families, we have jobs. Their job is to figure out how to hack a system or compromise its controls to get money out of it. You're going to see problems with uh, debit cards. I can't tell you how many texts and or emails I get in a day that are phishing attempts. This morning, there were three texts that were phishing attempts. Card services, please text in your debit card number so we can access your account and show you what's wrong. Right. No, thank you. It's not a question of you, know, you and I being smart enough to know what that is. They send out a million of them, and if they get two or three hits a day, 
They're golden. What do you think the world's richest people and wealthiest are doing with their money today, and how do they look at events? From talking to some people in uh, family offices, they're defensive right now, meaning they're taking short-term investments, and they're making sure that their investments, if they're doing any lending, is collateralized two-to-one or it's a, a good government bond. And they're waiting for opportunities. They're waiting for the blood in the streets, the proverbial blood in the streets, to do their buying. What one family office, they specialize in hotels. I help them with their due diligence and digging in places uh, for them so they can make truly well-informed decisions. They buy hotels that they want their grandchildren to be proud of uh, owning. And they already have their eyes on several hotels. And what they're doing is they're negotiating with the lien holders to say, listen, if this loan goes into default, we'll buy the note. Now, what they'll buy it for is the negotiating. They'll buy the note. So the current owner either has to pay the note in full, in which case they may make 30 or 40% on their money, or they get a hotel. And this has come about because of what we're going through with the coronavirus and the shutdowns and the economy as it is now. Correct. And, and it's a cyclical type of investment when things go bad. There were several ranchers out here in the West that always maintained a strong cash position. Uh, they grew their businesses slowly. The only time they used bank debt was to, to deal with operational resources, not capital. And they would buy, you know, a farmer got in trouble. They tell the farmer, hey, listen, I'll pay off the note. You can walk away free and clear. And for some farmers, that was great. Other times, they would just buy notes on farms. And when the farm went under, they would do their best to, to, to be right to the farmer, but at the same time, add to their landholders. Now, just a wee note of explanation here. As Burke Files told me later, the note he was talking about there just a moment ago refers to a business loan or a mortgage with land as collateral. A bank or the lenders can sell that mortgage or note to anyone they want at any time. Yes, banks have a lot of leverage, especially as times get tough or a business or farm is failing. Burke was talking about his rancher friend who was a client until he passed. This rancher always had lots of cash on hand in CDs and money market accounts. Here's what Burke was telling me. And keep this in mind as we watch events today unfold. Yes, said Burke, the bank can sell the mortgage or note to anyone they want at any time. However, the rancher always sought the permission of the landholder to go through with the purchase and foreclosure. The rancher, while very growth-oriented, did not want to be a pirate. He wanted all to know, even if they did not like the deal, that it was a fair and above-board deal. He did many a million-dollar deal on a handshake. A true old-school cowboy and rancher. Thank you, Burke Files, for that explanation. We might see a lot more of these old-school cowboy deals happening in the future. I sort of hope not. We'll be back after the break. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne.
Why are 20 veterans a day taking their own lives? In this new gripping, brutally honest memoir, Iraq War veteran Tom Voss reveals the answer and an unexpected solution to the veteran suicide epidemic. Driven to the brink of suicide by the moral injury of war, Voss walked 2,700 miles across America in search of healing. What he found was something medication and talk therapy couldn't give him, relief from the guilt, shame, and sorrow that had been torturing him for years. A relief that came in the most unexpected form, meditation and sacred breathing techniques that shattered his understanding of war and himself. Dr. David Shulkin, Ninth Secretary of the VA, says where war ends will inspire countless others leaving them with a sense of purpose and hope. Brian Kinsella of Stop Soldier Suicide calls Where War Ends a captivating personal journey written with a compelling urgency. For veterans, their families, and anyone suffering from trauma, Where War Ends offers an antidote to the moral injury epidemic. Get your copy today on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Target, IndieBound, or ask for it at your favorite library or independent bookstore. Welcome back to our interview with the celebrated financial investigator, Burke Files, who'll talk more about fraud in today's coronavirus climate and in more general terms. We'll get into persistent fraud claims against China on intellectual property and other affairs. What were some of Burke Files' most fascinating and sensational cases. Honestly, I'm, I'm very happy to say I supported some of the journalists looking into the Malaysian Development Bank fraud. Yeah, Danske Bank and, uh, and uh, Deutsche Bank. What I find amazing is there's a commonality to those big frauds and many others I've seen, and it's in the documents. All of those could not have been done uh, if it were not for the documents being bad, altered, or in, incompetently assembled. It was just amazing to see how large document frauds can be. There was a, a report to the nations from the Association of Certified Financial uh, Examiners, and document frauds are almost 10 times as large as any other fraud. And what I'm seeing, uh, I, I'm seeing is a lot of companies that were getting in trouble already at manipulating their documents, such as inventory, for sales, uh, typically with sales, it's a timing issue, and it's coming to coming to light now. So fudging numbers, changing ratios, and financials. Yeah, I mean, a lot of commercial credit is based on a cash flow and inventory. The, the, the notes are secured by the receivables, the general obligation of the company, as well as the inventory. And what we're starting to find is the inventory is uh, off, sometimes as much by 20 or 30%. Do you get worried in today's environment when we're in shutdown mode? Everybody's working from home, although more people are going back to offices, but regulators at the highest levels are also, many of them, working from home. Is that a good model? It may be necessary, but can we supervise and run our nation that way? No, it's a bad model, and no, we can't. As much as I'd like to say we are as productive as it, at home as we are in another environment, I'm finding that not to be the case. I've, I've worked for myself for 30 years, either alone or in a small office. I'm more productive in a small office than I am in the house. There's always a distraction. Second, security. The security of our communications is not as good in and out of our homes 
as it would be within an office or in their uh, normal areas. We've seen, I've seen a few law firms have information leak out into the public. I've seen some law firms that have lost information on their clients and they're being blackmailed. Either you give us money or we're going to release this information on your client. Communication security is not that good. Doing something wrong uh, in the remote working. Yeah. Do you think after the worst is behind us, we're going to see a lot of cases emerge just because of the way offices are structured during the shutdown? We'll see more fraud cases. Oh, some regulator was sloppy and he didn't do what he'd normally do when he was in the government office and things slipped out. Are going to be a lot of red faces? Yes, absolutely, John. There's only so much you can do in a remote environment. I built my career on not being suckered in into that that remote uh, type of data. I'm the one who goes and there's shoes on the ground in another country or another city, asking people, making inquiries, trying to find out what's happening. And if it wasn't for that... Many times these cases, whether they be fraud cases or due diligence cases, wouldn't get done. A wrong choice would be made. Last year, I was in a Central American country doing an inquiry into the background of a, of a person who claimed to be injured, and that was their owner, only injury. We found hospital records of two very serious injuries in that Latin American country for that person that otherwise could not have been found unless you were there. So you had to physically go somewhere and kick the tires. Absolutely. I, I, take a look at just the errors we see in a lot of the, the big audit companies. They're not going out and kicking the tires. They're sitting in their comfortable offices, sifting through boxes and reams and, and terabytes of data, but they're not going out touching things. You were traveling the globe just before the shutdown. You're going to conferences. Your year was chock-a-block with events, and then... Did it come to a screeching halt on one level? Yeah, on all levels. <laughs> it came to a screeching halt on all levels. I had just come back from uh, Nigeria and the UK, uh, got home just a, a few days ahead of the, the stay-at-home order here, shelter-at-home order. And my primary employers for investigations are those people going through litigation or insurance companies. Well, litigation, drug out, the insurance companies froze all claims and investigations. Everyone literally stood like a deer uh, in the headlights of an oncoming freight train. What do we do? So neither my investigations nor my, my teaching uh, continued. I had six international events for training in uh, due diligence, anti-money laundering, anti-corruption between uh, March 1 and June 30. And they're all canceled. I was talking to Jeffrey Robinson uh, recently. I did an interview, and he's written a lot of bestsellers on money laundering. He does a really good job. And he's fascinating to interview, and I'm going to do it again. He's telling me that the amount of money laundering globally is extraordinary. The, the number is $1.5 trillion, but it's mind-boggling. It's a huge percentage of the world's GDP. Yep, it is. So it really is. People can't jump on planes and kick the tires. That could even be getting worse in this environment. I agree. First of all, money laundering is not being combated in an effective manner. This isn't a plug. It's just a truism. I'm working on a book titled How to Launder Money, and I'm going through chapter and verse how people are laundering money. There was a, a book written by a uh, fellow in Europe 
called Goldwash, and I believe his name is Mark Heat. And he's a very good scholar, but his his book missed the point. He's he's a he's a good guy, but he doesn't get how gold is moved. Adding more restrictions on gold is ridiculous because gold flows where gold wants to go, and moving gold and smuggling gold across borders is incredibly easy with the slightest amount of effort. Let's That's stop crazy. you on that, Barkan. Sure. Moving gold across borders is easy. So how? Uh, it'll <laughs> be in the book. <laughs> so you put it into your um, suitcase? Yeah. Uh, one of the... Uh, I suppose you go through make- customs and they say, oh, uh, Mr. Files, there's gold in your suitcase. Well, the idea is that you craft the gold so it looks to be part of the suitcase, such as a one or two kilogram handle. Uh, <laughs> wow, it's an another one. suitcase. Hi. <laughs> it is. Um, the other is uh, uh, one I saw was they would take, when you open a suitcase, there's that fabric lining, and somehow it is either glued or clipped into the clamshell. There was a retaining ring around the fabric to hold it into place that was a 10-gauge platinum wire. You could also Another, attach it to your business shoes that you're slipping conveniently to your suitcase. And you could have a little um, gold tip on it and maybe paint over the gold. Yeah, there, there, is, there is some ability to... Does that happen, Burke? People smuggle yeah. gold like that? Yes, they'll hollow out their shoes and sandals and they'll put in gold shot. So it flexes. And one fellow was stamping out, he would pour gold into a, a mold about the size of a 3 by 5 note card and maybe 3 eighths of an inch thick. And then he would put it into an old stamping machine, stamp it, and it looked like a car bracket, and then he painted it OEM black, uh, original equipment manufacturer black, and put it in packaging for a bracket for a car. What was the value of one of those fraud transactions, putting gold into the suitcase? What are we looking at in dollars? You know, a a gold handle on a suitcase, I've seen was about five ounces of gold, so seven, eight thousand dollars. Multiplied by four suitcases. Another fella, he traveled across the border, and he always had this clunky bracelet on. Well, when he went from country A to country B, it was uh, what's known as dory gold, an impure form of gold. And it was about four or five ounces. When he came across the border, he had one that was made of brass. <laughs> okay. So he crossed the border as a, a, a truck driver down here between Arizona and Mexico three four times a day. Sounds like we could see more gold fraud occurring. Well, even even moving money across borders is has gotten so easy. Whether it be uh, trade based money laundering, where you're buying and selling things across borders. I shipped down to Mexico twenty tons of extra virgin olive oil, and that tractor trailer makes a U-turn and changes the name from extra virgin olive oil to to used oil and it comes back across the border. You can have that truck doing uh, loops all day long. Customs officials, unless they're astute, will, be, will fall for us. That's what you're saying? Um, the customs officials I've met in just about every country have been very sharp. Just the sheer volume. I've, I've heard that from Jeffrey as well. They're really smart people, but it's just impossible to fully police it. It's just so much gets through. Drug money, drugs... Yeah contraband, etc. Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you wanted to smuggle hard currency across the border, put it into the lining of a, a cargo box, fill the cargo box with whatever you want to fill it with, and uh, off it goes. 
Who are the slickest fraudsters in America today? Ah, the ones we haven't heard of. (laughs) (laughs) Well, put it this way. What is their front? What's their shingle say? What did did they do in the legitimate world as a a front? The shingle will, will have something to do with an opportunity. I've seen something going on for years where an investment group will put together an offering of, say, a piece of raw land, a old folks' home, an equipment rental company. And these are all uh, genuine opportunities. However, the price has been inflated. So the investors may buy the piece of land for $10 million, but it's gone through a series of transactions and or parcels around it have gone through a series of transactions to artificially increase the value of that land. And, and John, you know diversification is part of everyone's investment mantra. They don't want anyone to own more than 1% or 2% of any one of these investment opportunities. So, John, if you've got a million dollars, I'd rather you put in $200,000, $250,000 in four different projects than $1 million in one project. Diversification is important, isn't it, John? Of course, you'll smile and nod, go yes. So what happens over a period of time? The investment opportunity is run or managed. Um, It doesn't do very well. See, they've got some debt on it. They're going to foreclose on the debt, and everyone kind of loses their money. Sorry about that. And the the asset goes to sale, probably 30 cents on the dollar, to a uh, front company or shell company that is owned essentially by the architects of the fraud. And why is it important to only have 1% or 2% people invest into something? Well, it's because no one has lost a large enough sum of money to actually be willing to front the attorney's fees to litigate. That's probably the slickest one. And that's going to continue uh, whether there's a good economy or a bad economy. As the rule of Ed Conter, attorney Ed Conter says, a fool and his money are soon popular. Uh, Are crime families still out there? Traditionally, we know who they were. There's different ethnic mobs, very active in financial fraud. Has that changed or is just new groups emerging? There are still ethnic groups in Europe, almost a a tragic comedy, that an Albanian outside of Albania is going to have an accident when they touch a car. The Albanian Albanian gang insurance fraud is just amazing throughout Europe. I hope to take Um, Geico insurance. You still have the same same types of fraud going on, whether it be insurance fraud, home repair fraud. Those will continue as long as there are humans on the planet. But you're getting more sophisticated fraud. Uh, you're getting systemic theft of intellectual property from the United States going overseas. Can we identify some of those countries, although I may not have to guess? Yeah, hmm, China. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's just stop you there. Some people are skeptical of that. They say, oh, that's Mr. Trump, or President Trump, beating up the Chinese. But there's enough evidence, right, to indicate and show us that China is is stealing our intellectual property. The evidence is overwhelming. I used to have an office over there. In China? uh, Yes, sir, in, in Beijing. And I'd meet members of the American Chamber of Commerce, and they're just like, well... I put together a factory, and there's one just a half a click away that's identical to mine, putting out material that I, at price points I can't compete with. They copy them. Yeah. So, so without getting there's... deep in the weeds, Burke, 
they what, what do they do? They, they, they study their designs and platforms. Do they are are codes sneaked out, or do they have insiders <coughs> give them the plans and the blueprints? It's one thing the to copy, to but is, there's a yes. process involved. Yes and yes. Mm. Yes <laughs> the and yes. To that is yes, yes and yes. Um, it's gotten so bad, and it happened uh, here. Nice gentleman runs a, a mechanical supply, and he had certain both patented and trade secret ways of making his equipment just a little bit more efficient. And he had a, a Chinese intern working for him, who worked for him for nine months. And uh, lo and behold, after the Chinese intern had graduated, went back to China, six months later, parts almost identical to his are flooding the market made in China. He figured out pretty quick how that happened. It took a few weeks, but it also took him nine months to get it shut down. He had to prove here in court and to uh, law enforcement and to customs exactly what had happened, where the parts came from, etc. In the meantime, he's got nine months of sales flying into the United States. So you can shut down the imports to the U.S., but shutting it down on the Chinese side's got to take international law enforcement. A case like that is millions and millions of dollars of litigation. And usually by the time you litigate something like that, even if you have a victory at the rapid advances of technology today, it's already going to be obsolescent. Chinese people generally are good, decent people. It's this system is corrupt. It's rotten. Um, Chinese people individually are... There's a great culture there. They're they're friendly people. They've had a rich history. So we want to separate the wheat from the chaff here. When you're told that you will advance the company and you will do this, and your boss tells you you're going to do it, you do it. There's no talking back. There's no questioning. You don't answer the boss back. That's the system that happens there. I want to wrap up soon here, Burke. You're writing your book. What else is going on? Projects ahead? Uh, Working with uh, a group, not a shareholder, officer, director, I'm doing this because it's kind of fun, and I have some time on my hand, called, uh, it's uh, Alternative uh, Investors, I'm sorry, Alternative uh, Research Services. And uh, it's an interesting advisory service that's looking at listed companies and predicting which one of them is going to fail, why and when. That is interesting. And they're looking at everything from debt, fraud to the personalities of the CEOs and presidents. Just fascinating work. But it's not what research analysts are supposed to do. Yes, but there's a flaw in most research analysts. They're looking for the value opportunity of when to buy. And the motto of this group is when the value's gone, you should be gone too. So you're looking at different variables. It's the sensitivity, how much leverage they have and how volatile their sales are. That's one indicator. Uh, The personality of the CEO is another one. The The personality of the CEO. So if it was a coop job or he was a heavy drinker or he had some kind of psych problems or wasn't steady on his feet, that kind of thing? Yeah, there's the quiet executive that puts their nose down and works. And there's the, the, the bombastic rooster that always has to take the limelight, is always right and never wrong. The two of them I can think of right off the top. One was the former CEO, founder and former CEO of BlackBerry. And the other, we have to go back a ways, was uh, Chainsaw Al Dunlap. Yes. Chainsaw <laughs> Al. He was yeah, quite the colorful CEO character. Has a name like that, it's bad. <laughs> <laughs> he, but it, he was the colorful character. Exactly. And it's the attention-seeking 
egomaniac. Uh, yeah, the, the attention-seeking often indicates of someone that is very in love with themselves. Second, Narcissist. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And someone who is always right and never wrong. So that doesn't mean they listen. They don't listen to other people. And when your CEO is not listening to feedback, either from the marketplace, your creditors, your investors, your management, the business is going to have a problem. It's not going to do That's as well. That's fascinating. But, of course, you would have to have a very good insight to a company and to officers to be able to address those. You, you would have to be very well sourced to know the lifestyle and the mindset of, every, of a CEO at that level. You know, it's you don't have to do a lot of sifting and sorting. You take a look at how many you watch the uh, the SEC filings, the uh, eight two filings, material change of event, and see how much, how many times they go through officers and directors, how many times their name is mentioned in the newspaper, and there's also an incredible resource out there called LinkedIn. Get their activity and so on. Yeah, just call them. Okay. Uh, Burke, your take on the economy and the election in November. I'm putting you in the spot here, but you have interesting insights, and you, your take is as good as any pundit out there. The economy is going to suffer greatly, and so no, will we. No, a V-shaped recovery, no, you don't see that happening. No, no. Um, we haven't even started to have the, the lack of income uh, and its consequences flow through the economy. It's just starting because we had a you know, three-month lockdown. There was some support for three months. Now we're coming off of support. And many people are on the extended unemployment benefits and supplement. Correct. As for the election, the last election we had to choose the lesser of two weasels. This election, we have to choose the lesser of two geezers. It's an absolute atrocious choice between the two that are running. I'd be looking at a vice president. If I were to vote, I'd be looking at the vice presidential choice. And I have <laughs> I have a strong bias against anyone being elected to office that is a former prosecutor. Oh, Amy from uh, Minnesota, Camilla Harris from California. My wife, however, also told me that if I ever ran for office, she would campaign incredibly hard, vigorously, and with all of her heart for the opponent. <laughs> and you're still together after all these years. That's a good note to finish on. It's a very good note. Brooke Files. She's a wonderful woman, but her husband is nuts. <laughs> well, it's been a very intelligent conversation. It's been entertaining, informative, and a lot of rich details. And I look forward to catching up with you when you get your book published, Burke. Thank you very much, Sean. Bless your heart. You've been listening to Life on Planet Earth with John Aiden Byrne. To reach the host or learn about advertising or sponsorship opportunities, call 973-664-9460 in the U.S. or email burndesk at gmail.com. That's 973-664-9460 in the U.S. or email burndesk at gmail.com. 973-664-9460 in the U.S. or email burndesk at gmail.com.